Due to the sensitive nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of hate crimes and sexual assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Before World War II, the social, economic, and political landscape of the United States shifted. Industrialization transformed the way businesses operated, as well as the demographics of their employees. As prohibition came into full swing, illegal speakeasies changed the ways Americans gathered. More women, people of color, and religious minorities felt empowered by new social and economic opportunities. In response, frightened traditionalists, the ones who reap the benefits of America's gilded, imbalanced past, look for ways to fight the winds of change. In the years immediately following World War I, the KKK recruited millions of new members. They even hired a PR team to manage their public image, hoping to appeal to new audiences and expand their reach. It worked. In a single year, the group drew in 100,000 recruits, a figure that works out to roughly 274 new members each day. And as more time passed, the hate group didn't show any signs of slowing down. American culture stood on the brink of a white supremacist takeover. The nation needed a hero. A hero like Superman. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This episode, we're covering a true story that features two documented, proven conspiracies. The first, a Ku Klux Klan plot to infiltrate several government agencies in the United States. The second, a counter-collaboration between a radio producer and a civil rights activist with a wild plan to stop the spread of bigotry. Today, we'll discuss the rise of hate groups in 1940s America and meet activist Stetson Kennedy. Not only did he reportedly infiltrate the KKK and learn their secrets, he also leaked them to the creative team on The Adventures of Superman radio show. Next time, we'll explore the aftermath of the 16-episode Superman arc that aired in 1946, exposing many of the Klan's alleged secrets. Then, we'll examine who really won in a battle that pitted hate against truth, justice, and the American way. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. One day in the late 1910s or early 20s, a young boy named Stetson Kennedy found himself without supervision in his uncle's house. With no adults around, he snuck into his uncle's bedroom and snooped through his belongings. 
Inside a closet, Kennedy found an unusual outfit, a white flowing robe accompanied by a pointed hood. It looked like some sort of Halloween costume. Curious what it was for, he asked his uncle about the items later that night. Kennedy's uncle wasn't excited to talk about it. In fact, he seemed annoyed that his nephew had discovered the costume. Reluctantly, he explained that the robe and hood had nothing to do with Halloween. His uncle belonged to a secret society called the Ku Klux Klan. At the time, the name didn't mean much to Kennedy. After he turned seven, his parents took him to a KKK parade in their hometown. He still believed the Klan was nothing more than a group of adults who enjoyed dressing up. But when Kennedy spotted his uncle walking in the procession, he called out to him, and his parents shushed him. See, they sympathized with the Klan's values and wanted to protect its members' anonymity. Kennedy's mother belonged to United Daughters of the Confederacy, or UDC, a group formed by the descendants of Confederate soldiers and lawmakers. The daughters advanced narratives that downplayed the role of racism in the American Civil War while glorifying defenders of slavery. Today, the Southern Poverty Law Center classifies UDC as one of many neo-Confederate groups which are known to promote white nationalist ideals. So you can imagine the type of education Kennedy received in his home. But life taught other lessons as well, like about how dangerous the Klan could be. One day, his family's black housekeeper, Flo, didn't show up for work. So Kennedy and his mother went to check up on her at her house. They found her in bed, badly beaten, and Flo explained to them what happened. A few days earlier, she took a streetcar operated by a white driver. When it came time to pay for the ride, she handed the man 50 cents, much more than the fare. But the man only handed her change for a quarter. He ripped her off. Flo argued with the operator, asking for correct change, and that's it. That's why she was now covered in bruises. About a week after the streetcar incident, news of the confrontation made its way to the KKK and the hate group lashed out. A group of Klansmen attacked Flo. They tied her up, beat, and sexually assaulted her. The senselessness of the hate crime stayed with Kennedy, And in time, not only did he notice all the injustices playing out in front of his eyes, he began to loathe them. His classmates liked to bully the black children, and when Kennedy defended them, he received criticism and taunts as well. Outside of school, Kennedy helped his father's furniture store business by traveling door-to-door, collecting payments from customers. Many clients didn't have the money to pay for their purchases, but rather than pressure his neighbors for payment, he chose to sit with them and talk. Now, it's safe to say that Kennedy never fully grasped the full complexities of racial disparity in America or how he himself benefited from systemic inequity, but he understood a valuable lesson. You can learn a lot about someone by listening to stories about their lives. 
1937, 20-year-old Kennedy accepted a job traveling through the American South, documenting folktales while working as a freelance journalist. He especially focused on marginalized groups like Black and Indigenous blue-collar workers. As part of his work, he wrote scathing criticisms of the hate groups in America that made life more difficult for people of color. His editorials ran in progressive newspapers. He even began writing a book, making a name for himself as a civil rights activist. Kennedy wanted his fellow Americans to open their eyes to the danger that groups like the KKK posed. But when World War II broke out in 1939, he wanted to do even more. Unable to enlist in the military due to a bad back, he couldn't fight the spread of bigotry overseas. So he doubled down on the hate still flourishing in the United States. In 1940, Kennedy quit his job with a bold plan. He wanted to take on the Klan directly. At just 23 years old, Kennedy knew the power of a well-told story. And he believed the best way to take down the KKK was to seize control of the existing narrative. If he could change the way Americans read and learned about the Klan, he believed he could convince them to choose justice over hate. He could be the hero to lead the charge. But first... Kennedy needed to learn everything he could about the Klan. And since few reporters had firsthand information about the secretive organization, he would need to go directly to the source. He'd need to infiltrate the KKK. Coming up, Stetson Kennedy joins a hate group. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults. Next on our series, a four-part deep dive into the religious movement known as the Moonies. Sushi, mass weddings, political coups. Discover the many business ventures, beliefs, and scandals of this headline-making sect. This is one special you do not want to miss. You can also catch up on hundreds of classic episodes and new ones each week by following Cults free on Spotify. Find out what turns a natural-born leader into a vessel for wreaking havoc. Enjoy a new episode of Cults every Tuesday, free and only on Spotify. And now, back to the story. 23-year-old civil rights activist Stetson Kennedy knew the Ku Klux Klan posed a threat to Americans' freedom. And by 1939, he decided he'd try to undermine the organization's power by exposing the dark secrets behind their carefully curated public image. Today, most Americans know the Klan as a violent terrorist organization. But in the 1940s, members insisted they weren't a hate group. At one meeting, a leader even argued that they wanted to help people of color by holding them to what the KKK considered, quote, higher standards. They claimed to care less about racial purity and more about small-town values, community building, and American traditions. They donated to charity, threw Christmas parties for orphans, and even had their own baseball team. Many Americans saw the Klan as innocuous, on par with a local chamber of commerce or an Elks Lodge. Kennedy knew better. 
He understood the KKK hid their dark motives behind a shiny facade, and he wanted to expose their racism to the public. But in order to do that, he needed to gather more information about their operation. Kennedy was well-positioned to infiltrate the Klan. Thanks to his family ties, he knew a bit about their inner workings. And of course, he fit their target demographic, young, white, and male. But inserting himself into the group as a mole wouldn't be as simple as, say, marching up to Klan headquarters and knocking on their front door. They were a secret society, prone to violence. If they ever exposed Kennedy as a double agent, there could be fatal consequences. According to his memoir, The Klan Unmasked, Kennedy knew the organization kept tabs on liberal publications. They would likely recognize his name from his many bylines. So, sometime in the early 1940s, he moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where nobody would recognize him as Stetson Kennedy. There, he operated under the pseudonym John Perkins. In time, Kennedy as Perkins ingratiated himself with a Klansman who went by the nickname Slim. From time to time, they'd meet up at a local bar where Kennedy would slowly drop hints that he was sympathetic to the Klan's agenda. He even slipped a few seeds of truth into his cover story, like telling Slim his uncle was a member. Slim took the bait. Soon enough, he told Kennedy exactly what he needed to do to join the Klan. First, he'd have to open his wallet. Dues were $10 to $12 a year, depending on how he wanted to structure payments. The initiation fee was an additional $8 to $10, and robes were another $15. Meaning, aspiring Klansmen needed to fork over what would be more than $400 U.S. dollars in 2022, up front, at a minimum. Kennedy complained about the fees, likely because he didn't want to seem overeager and trigger any suspicions. In turn, Slim played up all the so-called benefits of joining the Klan. The networking, the fraternity, the fun. Kennedy's plan was working. Slim was now eager to recruit him, and soon the salesman in him really came out. One day at the bar, Slim invited Kennedy to join him in the bathroom for some privacy. Away from the other bar patrons, Slim proposed a deal. He would let Kennedy join the Klan at a discount if he signed up right now. He had the application all ready to go. So Kennedy jumped in. He forked over some cash and filled out the paperwork right then and there. And as he did, he realized he wouldn't have to wait long to unveil the true mission of the KKK. It was right there on the forms. In plain black and white, the text said the Klan supported, quote, the maintenance of white supremacy. Leadership accepted Kennedy's application 15 days later. Slim apparently called to deliver the news and to inform Kennedy that his initiation ceremony would happen the following night at 6.15 p.m. There was no backing out now. The next day, Kennedy showed up 30 minutes early at the location Slim specified, a major intersection in the heart of Atlanta. He noted the crowds of commuters 
and the patrolman directing traffic right at that corner. The address seemed far too exposed for a secret gathering. A black car pulled up promptly at 6.15. The back door popped open, and Kennedy saw four hooded, uniformed Klansmen inside. One beckoned for him to climb into the vehicle. Once inside, the car tore off down the street. Kennedy was shocked by how brazen it all was. The police officer didn't react at all, as though he hadn't seen anything. They drove for a while, leaving Atlanta and racing down empty country roads. Kennedy felt nervous. He wondered if the Klansmen possibly learned his real identity, if they had no intention of initiating him, if maybe he was in danger. Slim was one of the men in the car. Kennedy recognized his voice. But when Kennedy asked Slim a question, another Klansman shouted for him to stay quiet. Eerily, they sped onwards, swerving down dark, unlit streets. Looking at the speedometer, Kennedy could see they were racing more than 80 miles per hour until the car hit something. When the dust cleared, Kennedy could see what it was. A mule owned by a black man operating a cotton cart, clearly on his way home from a day of work. The mule died on impact. The worker was in tears, mourning the loss of his animal. But rather than express remorse, the clan driver grew angry. He joked about wanting to abduct the black man so the KKK could torture or kill him. Ultimately, the driver offered the worker $10 to replace the mule, an insulting sum that wasn't nearly enough to cover the cost. The man refused the money, and the Klansman left him on the side of the road. Kennedy piled back into the car, and they continued on their way. Later on their journey, Slim wondered if the man had called the cops on them. Then, as if on cue, Kennedy heard a police siren blare behind them, Lights flashed as a squad car tailed the Klansman's vehicle. It pulled up right behind them. Then it passed and continued on its way. Eventually, the harrowing drive came to an end. They reached their destination, Stone Mountain, a landmark that held special significance in Klan history. The modern incarnation of the Klan was founded there in 1915, The rocks bore a bas-relief carving of Confederate soldiers. Kennedy wasn't going to be killed. This really was his initiation. Kennedy walked over to a crowd of other new recruits. A Klan leader, known as a clad, ordered them to line up single file. Once in place, Each man put his right arm on the shoulder of the initiate in front of him, forming a human chain. The clad warned that nobody should proceed with the initiation unless they were fully committed to the cause. If anyone had ulterior motives, they should leave immediately. Kennedy fought his nerves. Silence fell over the crowd, but nobody recused themselves. The clad continued, seizing a red neon cross, ordering the new members to march. They paraded in a square, swearing loyalty to the hate group's warped version of American values. The leaders praised the recruits, 
calling them members of an invisible empire. But as far as imperial soldiers go, the initiated clansmen weren't the most impressive. They were almost laughable. As the new members gave their oaths, the leader ordered all the inductees to turn to the right, and several turned left instead. Unfazed by the mistakes, the clad marched the inductees back and forth again. More leaders took turns leading them in loyalty oaths, some in front of Christian altars. For the last, they stood beside a burning cross. As the men swore their allegiances once more, a sputtering sound interrupted them. The burning cross beside the altar had accidentally gone out. The clansmen muttered amongst themselves until someone found a can of oil and restarted the flames. Under the light of the reignited cross, the initiates were ordered to kneel. The clad gave them a final warning. The penalty for treachery was death. As harrowing as this sounded, Kennedy wasn't going to back out. Even if he wanted to, he was in too deep now. At the end of the ceremony, the clad announced they were all officially inducted. Kennedy, or rather John Perkins, was a fully-fledged Klansman. And now, his real work could begin. As he claimed in his book, The Clan Unmasked, Kennedy's initial goal was to learn everything he could about the KKK, then expose their practices in the papers. But following his initiation, an even bigger opportunity presented itself. After mentioning his undercover assignment to a trusted friend, Kennedy's friend ventured that Georgia's assistant attorney general, who they knew, would be willing to collaborate with him. After a clandestine meeting with state officials, Kennedy agreed to be a double agent for the government. This way, he could tip the feds off any time the Klan planned to break the law. If officials could intervene in planned lynchings or assaults, their work could save lives. And he could ensure prosecutors could respond to crime scenes before the KKK destroyed evidence, say by disposing of bodies, removing weapons, or making themselves scarce. The job was risky. Kennedy knew active Klansmen and their allies were in every level of government. Besides police officers who looked the other way, Kennedy anticipated that the KKK had militants working in the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the state-level equivalent to the FBI. He trusted the assistant attorney general, but wasn't so sure about the allegiances of their staff. If anyone spotted Kennedy dropping by the assistant AG's office, it could possibly blow his cover, even if his phone calls connected with the wrong person. The officials had no way of knowing which switchboard operators were Klan sympathizers. So, to help protect Kennedy, the assistant attorney general set him up with a special private line. As he described in his book, The threat of discovery didn't stop Kennedy from learning everything he could while undercover. He apparently memorized Klan passwords, discovered members' identities, and located their safe houses and meeting spots. In principle, the use of secret code words and mystical titles may sound exciting in a cloak-and-dagger kind of way, but in practice, they were... Silly, 
Yes. See, a lot of clan terminology involved taking a word that normally began with a C sound and replacing it with a KL. For example, their treasured book of rituals and practices was called the Clan. Its subtitle promised it would teach members clan values, which included character, spelled with a K. Likewise, gatherings were sometimes called clan caves or clan vocations. Leaders of the secret society had titles like Imperial Wizard, Genii, Grand Dragon, and Hydra. Lower-ranking officers were clads, cluds, clocans, and Kleagles. Kennedy kept note of every term and title, even the ones that sounded like childish nicknames. Much of the intel made its way into exposés he wrote that went on to get published in progressive papers. But the most surprising revelation Kennedy made while undercover was the KKK was actually a pyramid scheme. According to Kennedy's The Klan Unmasked, the society primarily functioned as a money-making endeavor. Those at the top encouraged entry-level members to keep bringing in new marks in exchange for a $2 commission or the equivalent of about $30 in 2022. Like Kennedy, every recruit had to pay an initiation fee, dues, and the cost of a robe. Take those numbers and multiply them by hundreds of thousands of members, and the top ranks of the KKK were raking in big money. Especially because dues and robes weren't the only income stream. The Klan also sold merchandise and branded content. At one point in the 1920s, the society's revenues surpassed $25 million. Which raises a question. Why were so many recruits willing to open their pocketbooks when there were cheaper ways to express their bigotry? During his time undercover, Kennedy realized one huge reason why the Klan was so good at recruitment. Generally speaking, Initiates weren't always motivated by white supremacy or hate. As we discussed before, some recruits believed the Klan was a charitable community organization. Others saw the KKK as cool, even aspirational. We discussed their secret code words, mythical hierarchy, and mysterious initiation ceremonies. In hindsight, Much of their terminology and practices were deeply absurd, but new recruits wouldn't know that before joining. And by the time they did learn, any white supremacist leanings they had were likely cemented into their worldview. In many cases, joining was the only way for someone to find out what really went on behind closed doors and at KKK rallies. It's human nature to be curious about secrets, to want to be part of an exclusive group. Think of when you were a kid. At some point, maybe your peers created a club you weren't invited to join or shut themselves in a room you couldn't enter. This probably made you desperate to find out what you were missing. Likewise, plenty of KKK initiates who held racist views but were not yet full-blown extremists might have come on board just to discover what the Klan was all about. And understanding this dynamic inspired Kennedy. 
He could remove one of their biggest recruitment tools by not only exposing their secrets to the world, but by making them look ridiculous. Coming up, Kennedy finds an unlikely ally on the airwaves. Now back to the story. In 1938, Superman appeared in DC Comics for the first time. The character was an instant success, so his publishing company wanted to find new ways to profit off the intellectual property. Radio, as a medium, seemed like an obvious fit. Early in 1940, two years after Superman's print debut, the Adventures of Superman audio drama premiered. The show's primary sponsor was a breakfast cereal called Kellogg's Pep, an American favorite at the time. And since many details of the Man of Steel's backstory hadn't been established in the comics yet, the daily radio show was able to contribute to his canon. For example, DC fans likely know that Clark Kent works as a reporter for the Daily Planet newspaper. That detail comes from the radio program, not the comics. Similarly, Kent's sidekick Jimmy Olsen debuted in audio, as did Superman's one and only physical weakness, the mysterious substance known as kryptonite. But the audio drama didn't just establish bits of comic book trivia. The writers had higher ambitions because they knew they were in a unique position to shape the way their young listeners saw the world. In late 1941, the United States formally joined the Allies in World War II. Superman's creative team knew that for many Americans, Heroism was now synonymous with battling the Axis powers in Europe and Asia. If Superman was going to have any relevance to his fans, he'd have to take a stand in the war effort. But the comic and radio show's creators didn't want to write stories about the Man of Steel punching Nazis in Germany or shooting lasers at fascists in Italy. And in a way, they couldn't. They'd created a character who was super strong, nearly invincible, and who could fly. People would eventually start to wonder why Superman wasn't single-handedly ending the war. Instead, the show's producers focused their storytelling on local issues, small acts of patriotism on the home front. Superman urged listeners to ration, buy war bonds, and contribute to patriotic causes. Then they found creative ways to link every listener's actions at home to the battlefields abroad. For example, Superman's radio show and comic books made it clear the Axis powers were wicked, in part because of their racism and intolerance. And by extension, Superman's message became there was no room for bigotry or hate in the United States either. Fighting prejudice at school or on the playground was just as important as battling Nazis. After the Axis powers surrendered in 1945, the writers needed new villains for their show. Instead of having Superman chill for the U.S. Army or lecture listeners about saving metal scrap, they developed new storylines around freedom, tolerance, and justice to present a singular message. There was no room for racism or hate in a fair democratic society. These themes and ideas weren't just catchy sound bites. 
They were personally important to many of Superman's writers and production crew members. The show's producer was a Jewish man who used the pen name Bob Maxwell. He had personally experienced anti-Semitism and was horrified by the inhumanity perpetuated by Nazi Germany. Needless to say, Maxwell was probably excited when he got a call from the advertising firm that managed Kellogg's Pep Cereal. The brand wanted to align itself with the anti-racist fight for tolerance and equality. The best way to make that happen was to ensure Superman continued sticking up for the little guy. Maxwell agreed with the advertisers. Together, the firm and the writing team planned several arcs where the Man of Steel would battle anti-Semites, racists, and organized hate groups. Their efforts to create these stories were dubbed Operation Intolerance. The first reference to the initiative aired on February 5, 1946. The team was careful to keep the focus on storytelling. They didn't want the show's fans to feel like they were being scolded or preached to. But they never lost sight of their mission— For 15 minutes every weekday, Superman was a hero to everyone, especially outsiders. At some point while the show was airing, Maxwell connected with the Anti-Defamation League, presumably to collaborate on the best ways for Superman to approach sensitive subjects. It's unclear who reached out first or when the connection was established, though. There are no written records of their communications. But eventually, the Anti-Defamation League put Maxwell in touch with Stetson Kennedy. In his memoir, Kennedy claimed he was inspired to work with Maxwell by a group of young boys. He saw them playing one day, trading passwords and secret phrases. It reminded him of the various codes and terminology he learned in his time with the KKK. The activist imagined he could convince children to adopt the hate group's code words, mottos, and hierarchical titles, and in the process, demonstrate the childish nature of the Klan's philosophy and structure. He believed he could destroy the organization's mystique. But it wasn't going to be easy. Maxwell and the writers would have to thread a needle carefully. After all, They needed Southern stations to support the show if they didn't want to be canceled. On the other hand, if they were too subtle with their message, they might not accomplish their goal, and all their work would be for naught. In the end, the Superman team pulled a few punches to make sure their story made it to air. When they developed a 16-part storyline, they tweaked the hate group's name in the show, dubbing them... The Clan of the Fiery Cross. That's clan spelled with a C. They also decided to demonstrate how organized hate could hurt anybody. For the most part, the country knew the Ku Klux Klan as a group that targeted black Americans. But in the radio series, the Fiery Cross members harassed and threatened a Chinese-American family. The production team was careful to avoid conventions, They didn't want their actors faking accents or promoting stereotypes on either side, which was a delicate balance. They had to ensure white actors didn't depict people from other cultures inaccurately, while also acknowledging that not all racists were Southern either. 
Maxwell's crew wanted their story to rise above binaries, to be more than a story about black versus white, intelligent versus uneducated, or north versus south. Anyone could be a bigot, and anyone could be a victim of hate. So, every character, hero and villain alike, had a voice that listeners could mistake for their neighbor, classmate, or parent. The writers created new characters for the series. This included the Lees, a Chinese-American family being harassed by the Klan, and the Riggses, a white household with an uncle that was a Klan member. They all interacted with, and sometimes fought, established characters like Jimmy Olsen, Clark Kent, and the editor of the Daily Planet, Perry White. Finally, on June 10th, 1946, the first episode of The Adventures of Superman, The Clan of the Fiery Cross, debuted. As the airwaves crackled, Maxwell and Kennedy tuned in to listen. Now was their chance to witness the true power of a narrative, and for good or for evil. Next time, we'll discuss the 16-part arc that Stetson Kennedy inspired and the real-world clan's vicious response to it. We'll also explore the dangers Maxwell and Kennedy faced after exposing the clan's secrets. And then we'll re-examine everything about the story you just heard in this episode. Hidden underneath the two real-world conspiracies we've discussed so far is a conspiracy theory. Stetson Kennedy really did inspire a children's radio show to take on the Ku Klux Klan. But his plot with the Superman creators might have been built on a fictional account of his life, one that turned him into more of a hero than he actually was. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. To learn more about Stetson Kennedy's infiltration of the Ku Klux Klan, we found The Klan Unmasked by Stetson Kennedy and Superman vs. the Ku Klux Klan by Rick Bowers especially helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories is written by Angela Jorgensen, edited by Connor Sampson and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 